and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. If you're a book lover, you're probably also a library lover. Those two things just go together, like peanut butter and jelly or Sherlock and Watson. Some book lovers not only visit their local libraries all the time, but they also visit libraries when they travel. Carrie, for example, checked out Maison de la Literature in Quebec City when she visited several years ago. It is cool to see what libraries in other places look and feel like. Closer to home, there's a membership library in Cincinnati, Ohio, that would be well worth a stop if you find yourself in the Queen City. Our guest this week, Amy Hunter, is the Programs and Marketing Manager at the Mercantile Library, one of only about 18 surviving membership libraries around the country. She gives us a crash course in membership libraries that were invented by Benjamin Franklin before the rise of public libraries at the turn of the 20th century. Amy talks to us about the unique history of the Mercantile Library, including some of the interesting rules that were imposed back at its inception in 1835, about the wide variety of speakers they have hosted, from Ralph Waldo Emerson in the 1800s all the way to Margaret Atwood just a few years ago, and why many people consider the Mercantile a steampunk fantasy in library form. Since Amy and I are unable to do field trips. We had gotten used to doing some field trips. We haven't been able to do that because of COVID, but technology has allowed us to talk to some people from all over. For this episode, we're talking to Amy Hunter, who is the Literary Programs and Marketing Manager at the Mercantile Library, which is located in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is about 90 minutes from Louisville. Amy, we're so glad to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, I'm at the library today, which is in the heart of downtown Cincinnati. So there might be some sirens and stuff like that. So we always like to ask our guests, because we always have book lovers on our show, what their reading lives were like when they were younger. So can you tell us a little bit about your... Oh, sure. You know... I was sort of a serial reader in that it once I found a book I liked, I read it over and over again. And there's one that up until a few years ago, I read like once a year, once every couple years as an adult. And I'd have to say all of E.B. White, Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little, I loved those. But Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh was a seminal book for me. And that's the one that I have read into adulthood. You know, I grew up in Xenia, which is a farm town in kind of central Ohio. And Harriet's life in New York, in Manhattan was fascinating to me. And just also the, you know, the life lessons that are in that book, they're so grown up and so universal. I'd say those two. And then I just was so hungry for books. I loved to read. I could walk to our public library. So I did that a lot. And, you know, I went through phases of favorite authors and favorite genres, mostly fiction. I was not a fan of nonfiction 
much at all until actually until I started here at the library. You know, working at the Mercantile Library, and we'll go into a second how the Mercantile Library is different than a traditional public library, but what kind of things are you drawn to as an adult, and has working at the Mercantile Library introduced you to types of books that you wouldn't have read otherwise? Absolutely. So yes, the Merc has introduced me to vast worlds and authors, and part of it is because I have to read some of this stuff. For my job, and also because, gosh, it's really fun getting out of my comfort zone, which left to my own devices, I would stick in the historical fiction lane. That's my favorite. Mixed in with a little bit of magical realism, but still primarily fiction. And a couple years ago, Jennifer Egan spoke here. She wrote Manhattan Beach, historical fiction, which I loved. And she talked about listening to books and how that had expanded all the books she could consume. Until I'd heard her talk about them, I kind of discounted audiobook. It felt like cheating. Mm-hmm. And so audio is my very favorite way to consume nonfiction. Mm, I agree with um, you. I zone out a little bit too much with fiction, but nonfiction, and there's some really, really fantastic books out there on audio. So I can't recommend that enough. And that's probably like tripled the amount of books that I've read. I totally am with you on that. I do listen to some fiction, but it has to be super engaging because I will lose the thread of the story. Like if my mind wanders off for a second, then I feel like I've missed like some major plot point or something. Whereas exactly. I feel like with nonfiction, it's more forgiving a little bit yes. in that respect. So let's get into the nuts and the bolts about what the Mercantile Library is. So I'll give you sort of the facts part first. We are a membership library. We were founded in 1835 and we are the oldest membership library west of the Allegheny Mountains. We've been at the same address since 1840, which is 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati. So membership libraries actually existed before public libraries did. You know, if you weren't wealthy or didn't have your own book collection or couldn't afford to go to school, you didn't have a whole lot of options. And membership libraries are actually an American invention. Benjamin Franklin came up with the idea of membership or subscription library. And there's a bunch on the East Coast. We are part of a loose group of about 18 to 20 membership libraries that are still in existence. Some of them are called Athenaeums or Mechanics Institutes. But The mercantile part of our name speaks to the 45 young men who founded the library. They were merchants and clerks in stores in downtown Cincinnati, and they were young and smart and scrappy, but lacked formal educations. So they pooled their money and rented some rooms and bought some books. They made up some rules until the 1870s fiction wasn't allowed in the collection because that was frivolous. If you were a professional, if you'd already had an education, you weren't allowed to become a member again until the 1870s because partially you had your chance somewhere else, but also there were other professional institutions. There was like a club for everybody, basically. So I like to say for something, we're 185 years old and we've been fairly politically and socially progressive 
since the get-go. We started allowing women as members in the 1850s. Our first African-American member was in 1872. And we've had speakers, like really, really amazing speakers. Herman Melville spoke here in 1858. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah, Thackeray, Ralph Waldo Emerson spoke here three times. Updike, William Styron, Julia Child. Continuing to 2021, that's what I get to do. That's part of my job is bringing people to speak at the library. So we've just had a tremendous list of people come here and now we're doing it virtually. And I should say, we are not an exclusive institution. Anybody can join the library and it's really affordable. An individual membership is $55 a year. That includes all the programs, checking books out. We have a general collection. We're not a specialty library. So explain what a membership library is in ways that it's similar and different from a public library, because I'm sure most of our listeners are very familiar with a public library. So there's one in almost every county in the United States. Yeah. I'd never heard of a membership library until we started talking about doing this show. Yeah. And actually there's people who have lived their entire lives in Cincinnati and who don't even know that we're here. We're on the 11th story of the Mercantile Library building. They named it after us and it's not exactly easy to get to, but we're similar in that we're a circulating library. We have fiction, we have nonfiction, we've got periodicals and we have eBooks and audiobooks. We're not a big reference library because we have very limited space. We don't have computers for people to work on here like public libraries. We don't have an awesome makerspace like you guys have or like Mm -hmm. our Cincinnati Public Library has. But what makes us different is service. We're a small staff, but, you know, if there's a book that a member wants and we don't have it, we will get it for them. You guys are both Harry Potter fans, right? Yeah, we've read them. So I liken the library to Hogwarts room of requirement. (laughs) That's awesome. In that it's the kind of place that whatever you want or need, we have that for you. Whether you want to join just to hear these big authors who come and lecture, or we have tons of discussion groups for different topics. We have a haiku group. We have regular poetry. We have Shakespeare. We have, my goodness, a book club that's called Rock and Read, and it's just about music, books, like autobiographies and memoirs and histories. We have all sorts of discussion groups. Then we have yoga. We actually are a great workspace. A lot of people come here to work because it's quiet and we have great Wi-Fi, partially because in the reading room, there's no walls. So (laughs) it's literally something for everybody. I'm curious, you talked about the the history of the library itself and the building Mm -hmm. and all the different speakers. Do you all have records, I guess, sort of the history of the library itself? Because just to me, that sounds very fascinating, just the history of the library. Do you all have like a, a section where you have materials related to that for people who are interested? Not a section so much. We actually, 10 years ago for our 175th anniversary, a local historian wrote the history of the library. It's called At the Center. And actually, when I was interviewing for my job, I read that book because I 
didn't know that much about this place. And we have a fascinating history. And one of my favorite things is, and one of the reasons we've been able to survive and thrive as a membership library is that we have a 10,000 year lease that we prepaid in 1845. Oh gosh. And then we paid $10,000. So basically we paid a dollar a year and 175 years ago to stay. And it goes with this address, 414 Walnut. So this is the fourth building we've occupied at this address. And it's kind of an amazing story. And it feels really special. And it's a breathtakingly beautiful space, I have to say, which I shouldn't be describing that on a podcast. You can go to the your website and see yes. it, but it does look pretty darn amazing. And it seems like it's almost like taking a step back in time a little bit. From what I've read, the mercantile libraries or membership mm-hmm. libraries in general are generally in older cities in the United yes. States. And public libraries started to transition with Andrew Carnegie when he started making his donations to all those Carnegie libraries all across the country. Yeah. Although Seattle just started a membership library within the last five or six years, I think. And then San Francisco has one and La Jolla, California, there's one there too. But yeah, we are pretty much older institutions in older cities, but we're still fighting sort of a reputation of being for exclusive, wealthy, older white people. And Uh that's really not it at all. Walking into the library is kind of a step into the past, but we also have one foot in the future. And we feel like the 45 young men who founded it also did. They were really into technology. Like I feel like they would be just beyond thrilled to know about virtual programming or even a podcast that you could reach people all over the world from downtown Cincinnati or downtown Louisville. So you know, when we're thinking about programming and what we do here, that's what we try and keep in mind. So a public library, they're funded by federal dollar or federal tax money. Dollars. Yeah. A membership library, you're supported by the memberships that people We're, pay. yep, membership fees and sponsorship donations. And we're a 501c3 nonprofit. And I came from the nonprofit world before this, and we don't like spending a lot of money for frivolous stuff. We spend most of our money on books. You were talking about that a lot of people use it as a workspace. Mm -hmm. And I was reading that if you're paying $55 a year, that's way cheaper than if someone was trying to rent some workspace. Exactly. But but that also made me wonder a little bit about like the demographics of your members. Because when I think of people trying to find workspace, I think of Millennials. Yeah, millennials. I think millennials. Absolutely. Um, So I'm wondering what the demographics of your members look like as far as like age, gender, things like that. Every year we get younger and more diverse. So I've been here since 2016. John Faraday, who is the executive director, he started in 2015 and sort of blew the doors open on the place. And I was hired to do that also. I was looking at the website for the Mercantile Library. There is a quote that you'll have featured on there that really 
stuck out to me. And the Mm -hmm. quote was from someone who gave a lecture, Mm -hmm. I believe, at the Mercantile. Mm -hmm. And the quote was, it's like a steampunk fantasy of what a library should be. (laughs) And so I was wondering if you'd talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that is from David Giffels, also known as the Bard of Akron. So as I said, you walk in here and especially the reading room, which is the entire 11th floor of the building. And we have 23 foot ceilings with windows that are almost as tall. So it's this big, beautifully lit space and it's hardwood floors. One end of the reading room are stacks that are original to 1904 and they're very industrial looking. They're iron and they're two-story stacks. The floors are glass that are original to let light through. And then a lot of our furniture is from the 1850s that was commissioned for the library. So it's these big wooden pieces of shelving and cabinets. And then we have wrought iron umbrella racks that are really beautiful and scrolly, but heavy looking. And then we have lots of older libraries. We have busts of people all over and fancy artwork. So it is funny combination of steel and glass and wood and art. Even before I started describing it as the room of requirement at Hogwarts, people would walk (laughs) in and say, this feels like Hogwarts. We have a two-story spiral wrought iron staircase. Honestly, I've been here four and a half years and sometimes I notice something I've never noticed before. Fun stuff. It sounds like a feast for the eyes, not just the books, but (laughs) but just the architecture and, and everything that's there. Yeah, it is. It feels good being here. So Amy, you had mentioned the collection there. Mm -hmm. You said that it's not really geared towards any specific type of collection. It's kind of general. You have contemporary books, but you also have some really rare older books too. Is that accurate? We do. Yes. So like I mentioned, fiction wasn't allowed in the collection until the 1870s. So we have a lot of science and the classics, Greek, Roman, Latin histories. We have tons of travel and then we have Shakespeare and poetry. And we also have a lot of older books. We have two books from the 1600s that are our oldest books. And they, quite frankly, they're weird. One, um, <laughs> but weird in, the, in a really cool way. One is about Egyptology, but the other one is the prophecies of Michael Nostradamus from 1672. Oh, wow. Gorgeously illustrated. And what I find fascinating is that it's not in Latin, it's in English and French from 1672. And I'm kind of blown away by that. But as the director, John, says, we are a library, not a museum. So anybody who wants to see that book can. Those two books are in our safe. But any of our other books, like just the other day, somebody was here and he said, do you have any books about the Byzantine Empire? And I said, I'm sure we do. And I pulled one up, published in 1911 and hadn't been checked out since 1938. Oh my gosh. And he took it home. Oh my gosh. That makes me nervous just thinking about it. It it makes a lot of librarians and other readers nervous about it, but that's what we do here. You know, we want these books to keep living. And it's great, honestly. Are there genres that are especially well represented in your collection? I thought that I had read that you all have a lot of classic noir. 
We Maybe do. That's what I, I was going to say. Pulp fiction, classic mm -hmm. noir is a better way to put it. A ridiculous amount. And some of those authors were incredibly prolific, like 20 and 30 different titles from the same author. We have a lot of that. And we have a couple of our members who are really, really into that genre in particular, and will email us with lists. And we basically fill like a shopping bag full, check them out. And again, especially with fiction, those books get circulated, they stay in the catalog. But actually, you know, it's funny, our most circulated books are pretty much what the public library are is modern day thrillers, Grisham, Patterson, Baldacci. Those authors have fans and they know when the next one's coming out and they want to be on the list. But then got a ton of great literary fiction fans and there's a little something for everybody here. So in a public library, you know, they would thin their collections out. If a book is so old, they would sell it in a Friends of the Library sale or something like that. I mean, you're talking about some really old books. So does the yes. Mercantile Library do that or do they keep everything that they get as long as it's in good um, condition? We don't do anything with nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, actually, we did a huge deaccessioning project a couple years ago where we really culled the fiction collection. And that was based on circulation, cultural influence, and all sorts of stuff. And actually, it's how we got our first artist in residence. This woman actually, she sadly passed away last week. This incredibly, oh. incredibly talented paper collage artist. Her name's Sarah Caswell Pierce, and she's a former journalist. She, in 2019, we named her our artist in residence, and she took parts of our books that had been deaccessioned and made art out of them. I love that. These gorgeous collages and then actually some sculpture and really intricate, beautiful stuff. Images of her work there on our website too. And we sold the prints and it was a partial fundraiser for the library. And then last year, someone had donated to us a collection of first edition books from the 20s and 30s with gorgeous jacket art. And she scanned the most interesting of those and made greeting cards out of those. Ah. So our deaccessioned books found a way to live on. And then actually, I have a stash that I keep in storage because every year I build a Christmas tree out of them. <laughs> I love uh, that. I've seen pictures of that. It's so cute. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the first year I was here, it was not very good. And then... I've kind of figured out the engineering physics part of it. And it did you um, use one of those books from the 1840s and 50s <laughs> to do that? Sort of. We have a bunch of Harper's Weeklies and art digests from the 1800s. Aside from being lovely, they have no value. They're just annual volumes of Harper's and magazines, basically. And they're big. And this building used to be powered by coal. So there's still coal dust that circulates through the system. Oh, and wow. a lot of our older books are covered in coal dust. And actually, on the days that I build and dismantle the tree, I'm filthy. There are some books from the 1800s that are in the book tree, but they've been deaccessioned. They don't have cultural or any kind of serious value. We don't do that. We're not okay. that callous. So. Okay. One of the things that y'all are known for, I believe, is your lectures. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And you were a part of that. You you yes. schedule people for those. So tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about the speakers that you have invited and who will be coming in the coming year. Oh, gosh, that is by far the best part of my job. Since I've been here, we've expanded the kinds of programs we do. We have some annual events that we call our signature events that are kind of the same ones we have every year. And those are bigger. We have the modern novel lecture. We have the Harriet Beecher Stowe Freedom Writer Award and lecture. We have Hearth and Home. So they're themed and those are where we get like big authors. And then also we, we really try hard to get authors with book launches or on tour or something like that. So my first year, some highlights from that year were Claudia Rankin and Doris Kearns Goodwin. Since then, we've started a words and music event, which is actually a concert because music sounds fantastic here. So we've had Josh Ritter and Steve Earle and Chuck D. We've had Colson Whitehead, Margaret Atwood. That was kind of amazing to be able to meet Margaret Atwood. Min Jin Lee, she's one of my all-time faves. I was all I could do not to squeal. A fangirl moment. Huh? <laughs> it, um, sometimes it's really hard not to fangirl. And yeah. sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I'm gonna. Yeah. <laughs> and at one of our last events, it was in February, Ann Patchett was here. And she's kind of everything you'd think she is she's just kind and smart and funny. All of our big lectures, we postponed from 2020 to 2021 as best we could, because there is, even though these speakers were available to do virtual, there's really something special about being in this space and witnessing, I call it witnessing magic. Actually, our very last big event in 2020 was Kiesi Lehman, who wrote Heavy, Mm -hmm. and that was March 10th. Just to witness Kiesi read from his book and give his talk in this wonderful space made for that sort of thing, you don't get entirely the same effect virtually. There were some that we moved to this year. It's hard to believe it's 2021. We created a whole different series of virtual events. We switched all of our discussion groups to Zoom, and then we have a Crowdcast channel. And actually, you can still go back and watch any of our author events from last year that are on Crowdcast. And we had Caleb McDaniel, who wrote one of my favorite books from last year, The Sweet Taste of Liberty. It won the Pulitzer Prize in history. It actually partially set in Cincinnati and partially set in Louisville. Curtis Sittenfeld actually did two events for us last year. She's from here. She had a book event with her book, Rodham. So then this year coming up, we have... Tayari Jones, who will be our modern novel author, lecturer. She wrote Silver Sparrow and American Marriage. Alex Kotlowitz, who's a journalist, he'll be here this fall. And actually, Ibram X. Kendi was scheduled to be here on June 3rd of 2020, which was two or three days after George Floyd was murdered. He'll be here this summer with us, hopefully, summer or early fall. So we're really excited about that on the schedule. And then there's a couple that we're switching to virtual. Will Haygood, who wrote Tigerland, and he also wrote the story that the movie The Butler was based on. So it's still going to be a great year. All of our readers and members and listeners who have been so patient with us and 
willing to adapt to this virtual world, I'm incredibly grateful for. And I know it's really frustrating and everybody does want to be back in person, but in the meantime, we're working on coming to you. And actually we now have fans from all over the world. Well, you had told me that you have quite a few members from, from Louisville. Yes. So, you know, with the pandemic, we've had to rethink how to do things. And I'm wondering if this has been an opportunity as well to gain some eyes or some viewerships from other places. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are there ways to access the services to become a member? You were talking about Crowdcast. So mm -hmm. do you need to be a member to to see those? How does that work? They're free and open to the public, even non-virtual events. Actually, all of our events are open to the public. Some of them might be like a nominal fee if you're not a member. And most everything is free to members. We have one big fundraiser at the end of the year, which is called the Niehoff Lecture. And that's in November of this year. And we have Isabel Wilkerson coming for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's and awesome. <laughs> um, that's in a hotel ballroom. So I'm just beyond excited about that. And that's actually how a few of our Louisville members got to us. I think it was for Margaret Atwood. Some people joined and drove up from Louisville and came from a couple other places. We are talking about figuring out how to do some of our events in a hybrid fashion when we go back to doing some in-person stuff. Because one, we've got people from all over the world. And also we've gained some people who didn't quite feel comfortable coming downtown by themselves anymore for whatever reason. They're older or they didn't like coming down at night. Parking can be a hassle. And we've gotten a lot of those people back through our virtual events. So we're trying to figure out how to combine those two things. So we'll continue to offer some hybrid stuff for sure. And then also we have eBooks and audiobooks, just like public libraries. Yeah. So that's another way that somebody from not from Cincinnati can enjoy the benefits of the library. And, and you refer to a lot of the cool bookish groups that you've got going on there. Mm-hmm. Canon Club, The Rock and Read. I saw on Facebook the other day an event for a haiku group that's monthly maybe called like yeah. Peregrine Haiku Group. And that looked like yeah. that was open to anybody. So yep. for like these different kinds of book groups, are those open it's, to anybody and virtually yes. as well? Yeah. Yeah. Right now, everything is virtual and nothing is strictly open to members, regardless of whether it's virtual or in person. We encourage members to bring non-members because we hope they'll join. And yeah, the Peregrine Haiku Society is the first Thursday of every month. I love it. I surprised myself by how much I loved it. And then we started doing a few years ago, tackling big books in pieces. So we've done War and Peace. Jane Eyre was the last one. We're starting East of Eden in a couple weeks. I call that series like the books that you were supposed to read in high school, but didn't until you did. <laughs> the books or, you watch the movies for. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we've done the Odyssey. We did James Joyce's Ulysses. So those kind of books with a group of people in short amounts of time. And then we have some really fun stuff like romance discussions, and we've got some fantasy stuff. We're increasing our LGBTQA programming, book discussions. And actually, this one, I think we're going to wait until we have time to do it in person, but it's a series named after two women who were involved with the library. It's called the All Good McLean 
series, and it's Women You Should Know, named after our first woman board president, Carol Allgood, and Alice McLean, who was the assistant librarian from 1865 to 1907. And anytime the head librarian, who was always a guy, quit or got fired, Alice would become the temporary librarian, but she was never allowed to apply for the head position. And she was the temporary head librarian from 1900 to 1904, till two years ago, we posthumously recognized her as a librarian. She was a woman who gave her life to the library, and I felt like people need to know about Alice. So the book series is Women You Should Know. And so we're starting with hidden figures and significant women of history that you should know about that wouldn't necessarily. That's one series I'm really excited about. And I cannot wait until the phrase untold story regarding women gets retired. I love all these really innovative sounding groups that you have. They all sound fascinating. And if I only had more time to read, I could, you know, join all of them. But I guess I would encourage anybody who this sounds interesting to, to check out your Facebook page, Mercantile Library, but also the website. I would assume that all these groups are on there that you can look at a schedule and yes. that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're in every Tuesday, we do an Instagram book chat. Instagram live at one o'clock. That's our book advisor, Hillary, who she heads that up and she has different guests on every week. So that's just like straight up book talk. Yeah. Everything is at mercantilelibrary.com and we're constantly adding stuff. People are suggesting things all the time, which is really fun because with books, there's really, it's just time. It is. It's it's endless. There's a book for everything. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Amy Hunter and with Carrie, and we're going to talk a little bit about what we're reading. So Carrie, what's been one of your first reads of 2021? So I'm almost finished. I started on the recommendation of friend of the show, Robert Eric Shoemaker. He suggested to me a book called The Book of Delights by Ross Gay. And it's a book of short essays. I had never heard of this author. He is a poet and he's actually a professor at, I want to say, Indiana University. So I thought, well, if uh, Eric recommends it, then I'll, I'll give it a whirl. I'll try it. And so I got it and it's wonderful. It is especially good, I think, to read during a pandemic when everything seems mostly either meh or terrible. (laughs) This is a nice book because it reminds you of how delightful things are. So what he did was he set a goal for himself that every day he was going to write about something that delighted him. So that's what he did. Every single one of these essays is about something that he finds delightful. And what he does is his goal was to do one every day, but then, you know, life happens and you get busy. And so then he started stockpiling delights and he would write them down. And so I have been inspired by his essays to do the same thing in my own life. I'm not a person. I don't do resolutions. I don't believe that anything miraculous happens on January 1st. 
things are still the same. I'm still the same age and, you know, not much has changed. But I like this idea of paying attention and being more observant in my life and noticing things that make me smile. And so I keep a blog. And so I've started doing this. And I think the act of doing this makes you more aware of when you have those moments that make you smile and you start to think about them as, oh, is this delightful? Am I delighting in whatever this is? And so like today I made some bread. I have a bread machine and my daughter and I noticed how nice it felt to wrap our arms around the bread machine and kind of get warm, (laughs) (laughs) which is exactly what you want to do when it's January and 35 degrees outside. And I thought, you know, that's kind of delightful. So it has been uh, really, I mean, even though it's not like a a self-help book or anything like that, I think it really can make a person feel better about lots of things. So I, I highly recommend it. It's It's been really good. I want to read that one, but what were like the most memorable things that he said delighted him? I'm just curious. Oh, well, I mean, he has one about nicknames. Some of them are funny. Like <laughs> he was going through security at the airport and the person who was scanning him to go to the terminal, Ross had said that he was going to read poems and the the security person thought he said read palms, <laughs> you know, just the humor of that. I, I mean, it was I mean, lots they're of very different. small things. They're not. Yes. Yeah. Like yes. really small things. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. You know, it's not like, oh, I got a promotion. One of the ones, his mom is white. His dad was black. And so he talks about race in this book. One of the delights he had, he talked about how he went to a, a cafe, you know, so I guess there was a cafe and it shared a sidewalk with another business. And he was sitting out on the stoop having coffee and the person who owned the business next door, I guess it was like a pawn shop, came out and said to him, hey, you're not bothering me, but I think you could be scaring off some of my customers. And his delight was that a short time after that, that business went out of business and the cafe (laughs) took over that space. So there are things about race and about exclusivity and how he does take certain delight in when people who are judgmental or uh, stereotyping, when they sort of get their comeuppance. And we all do feel a certain amount of delight when karma rears its head. Seems like it's a particularly good book to read right now. Yes. I mean, trying to look for the silver lining of the pandemic. And, and I mean, it's it's cerebral, but it, it's not so cerebral that you can't. I guess the thing is, this book of essays can be read on different levels. You can read it as a pure looking at things that delight you, but there's also some deep layers to those things, I guess. And so I have found it really inspiring. It's also inspired me for my ideas for my students. So writing tasks for them and, you know, really getting into that whole idea of the personal essay and using experiences, you know, so that nonfiction, things that have actually happened along with those creative elements of telling a story. So I highly recommend it. I'm glad Eric recommended it to me. Amy Hunter, what have you been reading? Along a similar vein, Perestroika in Paris by Jane Smiley. It came out at the end of last year. 
And she's one of my favorite authors. It's a novel and don't laugh, but parts of it are funny. The main characters are a horse, a dog, a couple of ducks, a raven, and a little boy. And oh, it's I love it. in Paris. And the horse is a, she's a racehorse. And her name is Perestroika. And it is delightful and gorgeous and sweet and poignant. And there are times that I laughed and times that I cried. It is a balm for 2020. It's creative and smart. And it's probably the one book I keep recommending heartily to people for those reasons. It is just magical. And it's a really delightful snapshot of Paris for not being able to travel. And it's just sweet without being too cloying. Is it from the perspective of each one of those characters? I mean, does it alternate perspectives or is there sort of like an omniscient narrator um, or how, how does it, that work? It, with it's, it's a little bit of an omniscient narrator observing the horse. The dog and the horse are the main characters. It's tough to describe. I'm not going to do it justice. It's funny in its observation of people, the humans that this group does encounter, the horse takes her trainer's purse and is walking around Paris with the purse in her mouth. I, I cannot say enough good things about it. Okay. Cause when you started saying like a horse and dogs and my brain immediately went to animal farm, but it sounds like this is not anything like that. No. And it honestly, okay. well, you guys read a ton. It is so refreshing to read a book that's unlike anything you've read before, mm -hmm. especially, and Jane Smiley, I've read a ton of her books and it's unlike any of her other books. It's just gorgeous mm. and sweet and funny and all of those. I will probably end up reading it again this year. I loved it so much. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm adding both of those to my, to my list. They sound great. I beat you. I'd already <laughs> added. <laughs> I had already edited. Well, Amy, my Amy, co-host Amy, what are you reading? Or what have you been reading? My first read of 2021 is a book called Meet Me at the Museum by Anne Youngson. This novel is a story of a woman named Tina, and she's in her 60s, and she's a wife and a grandmother who helps her husband run a farm in rural England. Her best friend dies, and when she and her friend were schoolgirls, they had heard a lecture by a Danish professor about the Toland Man. I think I'm saying that right. The Toland Man, and this is a real thing, is a bog person. And so it was a man who was killed and buried in a bog from the Iron Age. And the bog, because of the chemical makeup of it, keeps the bodies that have been buried there almost perfectly preserved. And so this one has been preserved for almost 2000 years. And in fact, when construction workers found this body, they initially thought the, that the body was a recent murder victim. It was so well kept. So Tina and her friend had always talked that someday they would travel to Denmark to see the Toland man. And they continued this dream even into adulthood and is sort of this shared touchstone that they had together. So when T Tina's friend dies, in her grief, Tina writes a letter to that professor who first sparked their imagination about the Toland man. So her letter is really just a way, I think, of her to express her grief, a way to lament plans that were never fulfilled in her life in all kinds of ways. And it's a very emotional letter. 
So that particular professor, he's been dead for many years. He was a, a, kind of an old man when he gave the talk to her school. But the curator of that museum responds to her letter. And the <gasps> curator's name is Anders. And he's also in his later years, probably in his 60s. And so he tries to answer Tina's letter in ways that are concrete and not emotional. Because he's an archaeologist and he's sort of a scientist. He works in facts, not feelings. But over time, they continue this sort of pen pal relationship. And over the next year, they continue their correspondence and their friendship. And so this book is an epistolary one. It's written totally in letters. And in the beginning, all their letters are handwritten that they mail to each other. But later on, they move to email so that they can get responses quicker. But they still print them out to read them just like they would a physical letter. They get so that they tell each other their most intimate life problems. In fact, we find that Tina's unhappy in her marriage. She feels that she was forced into the life that she has lived because of an unplanned pregnancy. Her parents made her feel like she needed to marry, you know, the father of that child. And so she wonders what her life could have been. And we learn that Anders is recently a widow and that his wife dealt with mental illness her whole life and their marriage and the toll that that took on their family. They talk about their adult children, about the small minutiae of their lives, and they become each other's closest confidants and best friends. And at some point, maybe they want something a little bit more than friendship. You know, we're not sure. So she thinks maybe she will someday take that trip to the museum in Denmark where she can fulfill her dream of visiting the Tolan Man, and maybe she would meet Anders. But this trip is sort of a metaphor for moving forward in her life, because Tina has always stayed on the same course because it was expected of her. And is she willing to change that course? So one of the ideas this book brings up is that are you ever too old to change the path of your life? And as someone who is quickly approaching 50 a little too rapidly myself, I think about this a lot. <laughs> I can now see that I have a finite amount of time left on this earth. And how do I want to spend it? When you're younger, you still believe that you'll live forever. And so you think about these things a lot less. I was also intrigued by the fact that they carried on this whole friendship without having ever laid eyes on each other or even spoken to each other on the phone. In an age of instant communication, in an age of social media where everything is visual, your Instagram and Facebook, Snapchat and TikTok, but Tina and Anders cared for each other simply by the words that they put on a page. And are you more likely to make yourself vulnerable? or write deep thoughts if you're writing it down as a letter? Is there something about the process of handwriting something that makes you go deeper? And really, I feel like writing letters, real letters, is a lost art form. So Tina and Anders often seem to use their correspondence as a way to make sense of their own lives by talking about their inner feelings. It makes me, in a way, want to start writing letters to people that I care about, maybe my kids, my husband. What a great way to remember someone. Will you save their emails? Will you have saved their phone calls? Probably not. So one of the amazing things to me is that Anne Youngson is retired, and this was her debut novel. It was published in 2018. And so in many ways, she fits the mold that her, of her protagonist, Tina. And it gives me hope that maybe someday I'll do some cool stuff. But I feel like we don't get enough books with relationships with older people. It's exciting and sexy when you're in your 20s. But when you're older, like over 45, it's like we assume that people don't have the same needs for companionship, love, friendship. But what I'm learning just with my own experience is that wisdom and knowing who you are and what you want counts for so much and makes life so much richer. And, you know, maybe we all have another chapter in our lives. 
So I would recommend it. Now, I will say it's not a book for everyone. It's completely character driven. It's not plot driven at all. So if you're, you know, if you like a page turner, this is not that. But I really enjoyed it and thought it was very thought provoking and a sweet story. That seems to be the theme here. Sweet stories, <laughs> gentle, <Yeah>. tender. <laughs> yeah. 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 I typically can't take a lot of trauma in regular circumstances. So since the pandemic hit, there have been some books that have come out that people are loving and raving about. And I'm like, yeah, no, not for me right now. (laughs) I have been reading Um, a lot more happy books than I normally would have. I find myself reading a lot more of those now. Yeah, They just feel good. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, on this relaxed, happy, tender note, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Amy Hunter her top five. We are back with Amy Hunter from the Mercantile Library in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we're going to ask her her top five. Question number one, you are a foodie. What is the top restaurant or two you would recommend to someone visiting Cincinnati that really demonstrates the personality of the Queen City? Oh, that is tough. I used to be in the restaurant business here. I'm still friends with a lot of people in the business. But I would have to say French Crust Cafe by Jean-Robert de Cavell. And it's at Finley Market, which is our food market in Over the Rhine. Mm -hmm. So you go there and it's very French, but it's also very Cincinnati. There's Geta on the menu, plus a few other delightful treats. There's amazing pastry. You have to explain what Goetta is. Goetta is probably Cincinnati's third or fourth famous food. People compare it to Scrapple. It is steel cut oats and a mixture of pork and or beef and spices. And most people have it for breakfast, either loose, like ground or in patties. And it's a very German thing. And there are families who have had their family recipe for years and years and years. And it is delicious. So yeah, you go to French Cross Cafe, you get the dish that has ghetto with it, and then you go explore Finley Market, which is this gorgeous, beautiful food hall and shops, and you get a ginormous dose of Cincinnati sort of all in one afternoon. So I that's have been to Finley say. Market, and it is very fun. It is very yeah. fun to walk through there. Just that whole area over the Rhine, there's all kinds of great breweries, microbreweries, yeah. And it's fabulous walking. It really, Cincinnati is a very walkable city. So question number two, you are a history buff, especially for your adopted city of Cincinnati. So what is the top piece of history about Cincinnati you think people would find interesting? And are there any books you would recommend? Could be historical fiction or creative nonfiction that deal with the city's history. I do love Cincinnati and there isn't really in particular one thing about Cincinnati history that stands out to me. It's more a combination of things in that Cincinnati got on to the right trend a little late. We stuck with canal transportation in the 1800s when everybody else was going to steamboats. We finally embraced trains and opened this stunningly beautiful Art Deco train station in the middle of the depression. When everybody was moving to cars. Actually, we have an abandoned subway system. 
that's probably one that stands out for me. And actually our brewing history also stands out. But there's an author actually that Amy Smalley, you and I both know of, Karen Abbott, who wrote The Ghosts of Eden Park, which is about the bootlegger George Remus. That is a standout book about Cincinnati history. And he murdered his wife in Eden Park and represented himself and got away with it. And he was just this larger than life character. It's it's a nonfiction story that you're like, this is not for real. <laughs> and it's all true. So I would say The Ghosts of Eden Park yeah. by Karen Abbott is a standout book. She has um, a way of finding facts about historical figures or in the past that you think could not be real. Like I follow yes. her on Facebook and she's writing a new book. Occasionally she'll post interesting facts that she's found in her research. And it's just mm-hmm. like, this cannot possibly be true. But yeah. that's yeah. really what makes her book so fun to read. Yeah. And she's a meticulous researcher. All right. Question number three. You have the lucky job of recruiting speakers for the Mercantile's well-loved lectures. Who has been one of the top speakers you were most excited to talk to or book for the Mercantile? And you've named so many good ones that I don't know how you would pick. I know. And sometimes I'll see pictures and I'll be like, oh, right. That's me with Margaret Atwood. Um, Or, you know, like... (laughs) So I would have to say personally, as a reader, Ninjin Lee and Ann Patchett, those are two women whose work I loved long before I started here. But one of the most moving speakers was Kiesi Lehman, who was here in March of 2020 and just amazing. And oh, I didn't mention her before. Sandra Cisneros was here my first year here. And my goodness, she was extraordinary. She was really amazing. And Chuck D from Public Enemy. I've never met anyone like him who he did his research on who we were at the library. He's been to Cincinnati a ton of times. He knows a ton of stuff about Cincinnati. And he, in the post-event line, didn't turn anyone away. We were in that line for like two and a half, three hours. Oh my God. And he took time to chat with people and sign stuff. And, you know, people brought cassette tapes from the 1980s. <laughs> and, and he said to me afterward, he said, you know, I meet thousands of people a year, but this is the one time they're going to meet Chuck D. He set the bar as far as I'm concerned for like talent, how they should act and doing their job to make my job easier. So question number four, besides mm-hmm. history, you were also an aficionado of architecture. Do you have a top architecture style? And if so, what is a building that is an example of this? And what are some elements that signify this type of architecture for people who may not be as familiar with it as you? I already mentioned it, Art Deco. I've been lucky enough to work in two buildings that are considered kind of the best in the world of Art Deco architecture, and they're stunning. One is Union Terminal, which is now Cincinnati Museum Center. It's an old train station that is the largest half dome in the Western Hemisphere. And it's also what, for listeners of a certain age, the Hall of Justice in the Super Friends cartoon was (laughs) modeled after. 
So is um, that the one that has the different science museums in it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It, it okay. houses the Natural History Museum, the History Museum, a Children's Museum, and an Omniax Theater, and a Holocaust and Humanity Museum. And it was renovated a couple years ago and updated, and a lot of the stuff in it, the artwork inside is amazing, and it was brought back to its original glory and it is just stepping foot into that building is gorgeous and breathtaking and then Karoo Tower which is the other art deco masterpiece here in Cincinnati I worked there in a couple different places it's funny art deco is ornate and it can be really imposing which isn't my personal style at all like not in my house you know like I'm not a formal dresser but there's just something you can still see a lot of craftsmanship and artwork in the details Mm -hmm. interior and exterior and I think that's what I love about it so much they're just gorgeous representations of art and the care and detail that went into the planning and building of these icon monuments. I don't know a huge amount about architecture, except for what I like, I guess. But I love some of the older forms where you can still see the craftsmanship. You know, they're not cookie cutter. They don't all look the same. They put a lot of thought and care and actually have artisans creating the different embellishments on the building, I guess. Yeah, like stonework and friezes. and Exactly, yes, yes. All right. And your last question. You come from a large family. You're one of six children. Is that right? Yes. Six children? Yes. Two girls. So you have yes. four brothers. So what are some of the top life lessons that coming from a big family teaches you, especially having to live with so many men? <laughs> um, so I'm the baby of six. Oh. Yeah. There's four years between my sister and me. So I'm in a lot of ways, I'm like a baby and an only child. And there were the four boys, my poor mom, she had four boys, six and under, and then my sister. And then, oh my gosh. And how she kept her sanity, I do not know. But, you know, I loved being part of a huge family. I loved it. I love my brothers. It toughened me up for sure. And my sister, they frequently beat the crap out of us, not abusively, but right, you know, right. like as kids Siblings in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, it was the 70s, but my dad was a big outdoorsman and loved to hunt and fish. And he and my mom decided early on that they weren't going to treat my sister and me that differently from how they treated the boys. So I was four when I learned how to fish and six when I learned how to shoot a gun. In a way, it was a great service. And in another way, it was a great disservice that my sister and I were treated just like the guys because it took us a while to realize that that's not how the world actually works. Mm. But also, I don't have a problem with speaking up in a room full of men. And also, I have a lot of guy friends. You know, I'm not sure that I would have been able to make those kind of friendships without having so many brothers. It was just great having my brothers and their friends around. And I also learned how to cook in like large volumes. Um, (laughs) Which is a good skill to have sometimes. It is. It's different than regular cooking. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I can, I can make a little bit of food go a long way if I have to. So, 
Well, Amy, it has been so fun meeting you virtually and learning about you and the Mercantile Library. And I will be very excited when my co-host, Amy, and I can get up there and and do a little field trip and and check it out in person. So thanks for sharing it with us. No, thank you for having me. And this is an open invitation to you guys and any of your listeners to visit the library either online or in person. So thank you both so much. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.